Welcome to the Northeast Christian Podcast. We're so excited that you've decided to check out our weekly messages. We hope that you're challenged and inspired by what you're hearing today. We'd love to have you join us this weekend at one of our campuses or online at northeast.live. For more information on Northeast, visit us at necchurch.org. If you love the Northeast podcast, subscribe to our channel and leave us a comment or a rating in the Apple Podcast Store. Over the last six or seven years, our church has been developing this reputation of being the Love the Ville Church. We want to unleash the love of Jesus everywhere that we go. So it's not just in our city, but it's in our church, it's in our workplaces, and it's in our homes as well. We believe that we can do this by the way that we live and love and serve others by looking at how Jesus did that throughout Scripture. You know, we believe in this so much that last year we handed out these playbooks that are nothing more than just a blank notebook, but it gives us a space to take down notes and challenges and to record our progress so we can keep track of how we're doing in each of those four areas. In addition to these playbooks, we also take time during our sermon series throughout the year to focus on what it means to have a Love the Ville lifestyle. A lifestyle that represents Love the Ville means that we don't just think about May 15th as the day when we Love the Ville. It means we wake up every single day ready and waiting and looking for opportunities to love like Jesus. So for the next two weeks, we will be digging in together, specifically learning what it means to love the Ville in our homes. We'll be looking at scripture to see what God had to say about homes and how our families should look. We'll be talking about what it means to love the people well who live in our home, as well as how to invite people in to experience that with you. So we're so glad that you are here. I want to look at a story in scripture with you. It's found in Mark chapter 5, and it's a story of the healing of a demon-possessed man. This man has been shunned away from his home, away from everything he knows. He's been forced to live far outside of the city because he has been possessed by demons. By all definitions, this man is crazy, and the people in the city want nothing to do with him, so they want him as far away as possible. Until one day when Jesus is walking by, and he stops, and he casts the evil spirits out of this man. And we read what happens in Mark chapter 5, what happens next. It says, as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. But Jesus said, no, go home to your family and tell them everything the Lord has done for you and how merciful he has been. You see, in the story, we understand that this man has been shunned away from his family. He hasn't seen them. He's become a very different person because he's just experienced a miracle by Jesus. So he naturally assumes that the most effective thing he could do would be to go on the road with Jesus along his journey to spread the good news so that he can share what has been done in his own life. But Jesus wastes absolutely no time reminding this man that the most important thing that he can do is go home and tell the people there what has happened. He quickly reminds this man that his home is the most important mission field that he has ever had. The most important ministry that you and I will ever do is right in our homes. That was God's plan and God's design from the very beginning. It's somewhere along the road. Because we're humans, we've kind of messed that up a little bit in the sense of how we measure success. 
Sometimes when we try to think about how successful we are, we don't always think about how we've done at the ministry in our homes. We immediately go to a job and how you've been able to climb the ladder and you've been able to bring home a big paycheck because we assume that that equals success. And it does. There's absolutely nothing wrong with those things. However, what happens sometimes is we get so focused on achieving that kind of success that the reality is that our homes are crumbling and they're struggling, and some of our homes are broken. And that was never how God intended our homes to be. The truth is that we are very replaceable in most areas of our lives. You know, if I were to not be here, if I were to pass away, there's a good chance that Northeast would be able to find someone to take my place and my job. But do you know where we are absolutely not replaceable? It's in our homes. There is no one in the world, no one will ever exist who's been given the same skill set, the same personality, the same life experience as you have, which means no one will ever be able to take your place in your home. It's the most important ministry and mission field that God has called us to. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, Moses lays out for us a very clear design or a very very clear view of God's design for what our homes and our families are to look like. Here's what he says. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down. And when you get up, tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. God clearly laid out for us his perfect design for what our homes should look like. But then humans came along and we kind of messed things up a little bit. From the moment when Adam and Eve sinned when they assumed that their ways were better than God's. They decided to be completely self-dependent on what they wanted to do instead of as God has instruct, had instructed them. And ever since then, we've kind of struggled at clearly defining success in our lives and clearly understanding what God really wanted us to be focused on. So on a scale of one to 10, I would love to know how you think you are doing at leading and loving well in your home, where one is absolutely horrendous, and 10 is the people in your home are blessed to be in your presence every day when you wake up. How are you doing? What is it like to live with you? And how do you think the people in your home would rate you? Would they give you a higher score than you gave yourself, or would they give you a lower score than you gave yourself? What kind of leader are you in your home? Now, I wouldn't be willing to stand up here and talk about how we're all sinners and we all do these terrible things if I didn't really believe that about myself as well. And the truth is that I have found myself on the wrong side of the measure of success at times. If you've known me for a while, some of you might remember a season of my life about five years ago. I've shared about this before, but it fit too perfectly in here not to share The season of my life where my husband lovingly introduced me to what he was referring to as my Sunday face. Now, listen closely, because I have a feeling that a lot of us have a Sunday face, but you probably call yours or should call yours something totally different. See, what would happen is I would be exhausted 
and still trying to figure out that nasty word we call balance of being a mom and working and all the fun that comes with that. And I would be exhausted and stressed and frustrated and I have so much on my mind, but then I come in here on a Sunday morning and everything is wonderful. I am smiling and you would never know that there was anything going on that I was not extremely thrilled about in my life. Now, to be honest, most of the time my smile is genuine, so I don't want you to think that I'm usually fake, but sometimes things were hard. And the reason Jonathan coined this my Sunday face is because they would come, my family would come to church and they'd see me and I'd be so happy to see them and we were just sweet little family. And then I'd get home and I had absolutely nothing left for the people who are supposed to be the most important ministry in my entire life. I'd given everything I had to my job and I had nothing left for them. And the only reason I'm willing to admit that to you is that I'm willing to bet that I'm not the only one who has a Sunday face. So how are you doing at leading in your home? When we talk about leading in your home, we're specifically referring to what it looks like to be a spiritual leader in your home. How are you doing at modeling for the people in your home what it means to have an intimate relationship with Jesus? Are you reading scripture? Are you praying? Are you serving other people? Are you willing to admit when you've messed up? Are you willing to speak the last 10%? How are you doing at living these things out specifically in your home where the people who live with you see that behavior. I think that's the kind of leader that we all want to be, but do our words and our actions and how we're allocating our time always back that up? As Tyler and I were talking about this series that was coming up and what we really wanted to make sure we touched on, one of the things that we quickly agreed that we wanted to address is the need for healing in our homes. We think that some of the families represented in this room and joining us online need healing right now. We need to feel whole again. We need to experience restoration with our homes. I imagine it wouldn't take most of us too long to identify an area of our lives, specifically in our homes, that just need a little bit of a reboot or a refresh or a refocus. And if you're sitting here and you're thinking, I don't know why she would think I need healing, things are actually really good. I I am truly, honestly, very happy that things are good, but I'm almost willing to bet that at some point in your life, down the road, next week, next year, 10 years from now, you might just hit a spot where things aren't so great. And so I think it's important that we develop tools and a skill set right now so that we know what to do when those more difficult days come. It's going to be very, very important. If you're home when you grew up, was not a home that you would call kingdom-centered, I want to talk directly to you for a minute. Because for some of us, there was a very big difference between God's design for home and for family and what we experienced as a child or when we were growing up. And, And some of you are doing everything that you can in your power to make sure that you don't repeat those destructive family dynamics that you experienced in your own home. And if that describes you at all, I just want to celebrate you for a second because it takes so much strength to break some of those cycles that you've lived through, some of the things that you, know, you knew you didn't want to repeat in your home. It takes so much strength to make sure that doesn't happen. Can I remind you of the opportunity that we all have, if we can identify things that we don't want to reproduce, 
We have the chance and the ability to change the trajectory of our family or our future family and future generations of future families based on how we choose to live on mission and treat our homes like the most important ministry in our entire lives. Our home is supposed to be a place where we find fun and laughter and enjoyment and an environment of discipleship and understanding better what it looks like to live like Jesus. Is that what you find in your home right now? I want to spend just like three minutes specifically talking to those of you listening who are married. If you're not married, maybe you will be in the future. I wish I'd heard some of this before I got married. Maybe you know someone who is married who needs some encouragement right now. America as a whole can't really seem to decide how we think marriage is going for our country. If you have an assumption about how things are and you tried to find like a research study or a news article or something online to back up what you think is happening, you'd probably be able to find it regardless of what your feeling is. Because some information will say that less people are getting married than ever have. Some stuff will say there's more marriages happening right now than ever before. One news article will say that divorce rates are soaring, and the New York Post literally this week had an article that said divorce rates are actually going down. So again, whatever you think might be happening, you could probably find some statistics to back it up. So instead of trying to tell you about some research study or some fact-based information I found, I just want to share my heart with you, my gut as a pastor at your church. My heart tells me that there are some marriages in our church that are really hurting, and that's based on conversations that I'm having on a weekly basis with some of you. I'm not talking about the marriages of America. I'm talking about the marriages of Northeast. The reality is that if your marriage was strong before COVID, there's a good chance that your marriage got even stronger and you became even more united as a couple as you figured out how to navigate what happened. But if you had already identified some cracks or some struggles or some issues that existed in your marriage, there's a pretty good chance that those cracks got bigger or louder or more obvious because you weren't able to hide them as easily as you were before and everything else just kind of was brought to light. As a church, we are planning for the fall. We want to see if we're going to offer anything with our marriage ministry, like an event or enrichment of some sort or something that will help you strengthen your marriage. And as we were talking about what that environment should look like, we decided that we should take a survey. Instead of just guessing or assuming that we think we know how people are doing, we thought that we would ask how people are doing. So we put out a survey on Facebook and we asked folks to just let us know. And one of the questions that we asked was simply, what is one word you would use to describe your marriage right now? Very simple question. And as expected, we got some results like what we thought we would get, um, words that described marriage in a positive way, like united and cohesive. These are good words. Solid, strong, Secure, those are strong words. But as we saw these positive words, we also started seeing words like dismal, complicated, disconnected, disaster, and rocky. Now, to be clear, I know that when we ask you to take a survey like this, sometimes it just depends on the mood of the day. So if something had happened in your home that morning and then we were like, take this survey, you were like, I'll take this survey and tell you exactly what's going on. And there's a chance that by the time you got home that night, that issue had already resolved itself. But I think this is a very clear representation 
of what's represented in our church family. Some of us are doing well, but some of us are really struggling. And I think that one of the reasons marriages might be struggling right now is we tend to forget what a gift marriage is. It's not something that we are, it's not something we deserve. It's not something that we should just expect to have. Marriage is a gift, but do we always treat our marriage like the gift that it is in the ways that we respect each other, the ways that we honor one another, the ways that we date one another? I'll be honest, like I feel like Jonathan and I have spent so much time together in the last year and a half but I think we've had maybe less quality time because we haven't been as intentional about dating each other and making time for that. Our marriages are a gift, and when we don't treat them as the gift that they are, the reality is our homes get to a place where there are cracks, and we get to a place where we just need some healing, and we need to refocus our minds. Our homes, regardless of if you're married or you're single or you live with your parents, you live by yourself, Whatever your home looks like, every single one of us has a responsibility to help contribute to what the tone of our home is. So what is the tone of your home right now? Our home should reflect the love of Christ. Our home should be where we learn what hope is. There should be moments throughout our day, every single day, where we are reminded of how much God loves us because of the joy that is felt in our homes. How are we doing at that? What I'd like to do during uh, the rest of our time together is just review two biblical principles that I think, if we can figure out how to do these really well in our relationship with God and in our relationships with the people in our homes, I think that we will be one step closer to that healing that we're talking about, that restoration that we want you to find in your home. And the first principle that I want to talk to you about is that of repentance. Repentance begins the moment that we are ready to admit that we have hurt someone, wronged someone, or mistreated someone. That is what repentance is. And it's no coincidence to me that in Scripture, we see the very first time that Jesus ever preached to a crowd, he actually preached about repentance. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, it says, From then on, Jesus began to preach, Repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. If the kingdom of heaven is near, if we really believe that, then our natural response to that should be repentance. It should be owning when we've messed up, acknowledging when we've hurt someone. That should be our immediate response. I love the words that we read in Psalm 139. It kind of gives us almost a prayer to pray to God when we know that we need to repent or confess of something. It says, God, see what is in my heart. Know what is there. Test me. Know what I'm thinking. See if there's anything in my life that you don't like. Help me live in the way that is always right. Amen. Thank you. That is a powerful prayer that any of us should be praying to God if we are ready to repent. But the reality is, too often in our lives, we just don't want to repent because it admits that we are human. And for some reason, that can be really scary to us. There are two main reasons why we live in unrepentance. And these two reasons are oblivion and pride. The reality is that sometimes we don't even know that we've hurt someone, and so we don't know that we need to repair that relationship. But on the other side of that is pride, where in the back of our minds or somewhere deep down in our hearts, we probably know that we've hurt someone, but we're just not willing to admit it. And these two extremes 
are on opposite ends of each other, and I think there's somewhere in the middle where we can come to this really healthy place where we're able to acknowledge and realize when we have hurt someone. The crazy thing about repentance is sometimes we assume that if we're going to apologize to someone, it means that we're going to say, I was right, you were wrong. But that's not necessarily what repentance is. Repentance is a willingness to put aside who was right and wrong and to remember that your relationship with that person is way more important than your bruised ego. That is true repentance. We have this opportunity to repent in our homes, and yet sometimes we don't think of it in that context, that it's a biblical mandate that we should remember to repent to our families. Now, for those of you who know me, you probably think it's pretty ironic that I would choose to talk about apologizing because there's this part of my life where, well, it's really my whole life, that I am a chronic apologizer. I've been like this for as long as I can remember. I have probably said I'm sorry approximately 60,000 more times than necessary, and I'm not exaggerating. That number is probably way too low. But here's the problem with that. I've kind of been on this journey over the last couple of years of learning who I am and figuring out areas of my life that need to grow. And I've identified that area as one of them because when you say I'm sorry so many times, you kind of become the girl who cried wolf. Because those words, they no longer carry the weight that I need them to. They no longer carry any credibility because if I say I'm sorry, it's just kind of who I am. It's what I do. It's what I say. And so when there are times when I am truly, truly repentant and I need to be apologizing for something, I don't know how to do it effectively and make sure the person knows that this time is different. I know I said I'm sorry yesterday, but this time I'm really, really sorry. We have to be so careful with our language because I think for some of us, we apologize way too often, but some of us don't apologize at all. And again, there has to be a healthy middle place where we're able to own what we've done wrong in a healthy biblical way and take steps toward repentance. So what I'd like to do right now is show you just how our language and shifting our language a little bit when we're practicing repentance with the people we love the most, how much it can change the trajectory of your relationship with that person. So what if instead of saying, I'm sorry you felt that way, which for the record is basically like saying, calm down, not effective in any environment. How about instead of saying, I'm sorry you feel that way, we practice repentance by saying, I'm sorry I made you feel that way. It wasn't my intention. How about instead of, it was your fault that I, whatever you did, how about repentance, which looks like I will change my behavior by doing this instead. Instead of the reason I did that was, you know, the reason probably actually doesn't really matter all that much if the person's upset with you. So instead, I made a mistake and I regret it. Do you hear the ownership and the repentance and the willingness to be wrong in those words? And how about this one that might sound like something I would have said a couple years ago? I'm sorry, you're not sorry enough to say sorry, because I'm clearly sorry enough to say sorry. How about instead of that, we say, I want to make sure this doesn't happen again. Here's what I'm going to do to make sure. Repentance is something that we have to practice in our relationship with God as often as possible. And if we can get it right in our relationship with God, it will spill over into our relationships with every single person in our home and the people in our lives that we love the most. Repentance is absolutely necessary. The second principle I want to talk through with you is forgiveness. Forgiveness is at the very heart 
of Christianity. Forgiveness is not free. It actually comes at a very high cost. But if we truly want to love others well, then forgiveness simply must be a part of our lives. So when we think about forgiveness, I love what Tim Keller had to say about forgiveness. It's a story example of of understanding it a little better. He said, what then is forgiveness? Forgiveness means giving up the right to seek repayment from the one who harmed you. But it must be recognized that forgiveness is a form of voluntary suffering. What does that mean? Think about how monetary debts work. If a friend breaks my lamp and if the lamp costs $50 to replace, then the act of lamp breaking incurs a debt of $50. If I let him pay for and replace the lamp, I get my lamp back and he is out $50. But if I forgive him for what he did, the debt does not just somehow vanish into thin air. When I forgive him, I absorb the cost and payment for the lamp. Either I'll pay the $50 to replace it or I'll lose the lighting in that room. To forgive is to cancel a debt by paying it or absorbing it yourself. Someone always pays every debt. Who is always paying the debt for us? It's God. Who's always paying the debt in your home? Is it the other person? Is it the person you view as the perpetrator? Or sometimes is it worth taking on some of the voluntary suffering so that we can better understand what God does for us every single day of our lives? If we live with an unwillingness to forgive someone for their words or their actions toward us, if we live with that unforgiveness, it will actually limit our ability to share the gospel with a world that is hurting. And when we do that in our homes, we are limiting our ability to share the gospel in our homes, especially if our homes are hurting. Conflict is something that we will never be able to avoid. I lived a good couple years of my life thinking I could just avoid it altogether, and I can promise you that did not go well. Conflict is something that we have to start seeing as an opportunity to glorify God instead of seeing it as something that brings out some sort of weakness in us. Because we will be practicing forgiveness for the rest of our lives. That is not something that will just go away. God is going to make sure that we're learning and understanding better what forgiveness looks like in our lives. And that means that conflict is that opportunity to show that we're becoming more like Jesus. Conflict is not a threat. Forgiveness is not a threat. It's an opportunity to glorify God in those conversations. When we're willing to forgive someone, it means that whatever has happened, it no longer takes up space in your relational space with that person. And if it does, there's probably a chance that you haven't actually forgiven them for whatever it is that happened. Now, for some of you, when I talk about unforgiveness, it's kind of like a trigger for you because Um, You're sure that I don't know about the thing that your spouse did or your parent did or your friend did or whatever it is that in your life has been unforgivable. And I don't mean to diminish that in any way. I cannot imagine the pain that some of you have experienced from things that have been done to you or said to you in any way. So if you're sitting there and you are sure that you'll never be able to forgive that person for whatever it is that happened, I want to give you permission to know that it's okay to feel that way in this moment but I just want to remind you that God is urging you to find a way to take a step toward forgiveness where maybe you're not ready to say, I forgive you. Maybe it's just time for you to say, I don't forgive you yet. That word yet could be everything you need to find true healing and freedom from it. Sometimes we forget that when we offer forgiveness to someone, we are the ones who feel 
freedom from it. We feel freedom from the hate and the resentment that we've been carrying around with us unnecessarily sometimes. Forgiving someone doesn't mean that you have to trust them again. It just means that you're willing to model for them what God has modeled for us in our lives over and over and over again. So I want to look at some of our language shifts again when it comes to forgiveness because sometimes simply changing what we say to someone or the tone that it is said in can change the tone of our home, can bring the healing that we want to bring into our homes. So instead of, you should be sorry, a step toward forgiveness would be, I was really hurt by what happened. How about instead of, I will never forgive you, you just try to say, I'm just not ready to forgive you yet. And instead of, you're still a terrible person, which might be what you're thinking deep down, How about we try to say, I forgive you, but it's going to take a lot of time to rebuild trust. Sometimes the language that we use, the tone that we have in our homes can create those cracks that we were talking about, those issues that you can only hide or stuff down for too long before eventually they will come out and it won't be pretty. Forgiveness is an opportunity to heal our relationships with the people we love the most. If we can find a way to practice both repentance and forgiveness in our homes, it it very much emulates our relationship with Christ, right? We practice repentance with him and he forgives us. It's a never-ending cycle. And eventually, if we can get that working really well in our relationship with God, it's only natural that that will eventually spill over into our relationships with the people in our homes, the people that we are supposed to care about the most. So I want you to think about whatever the end goal is in your mind for the people who live in your home, if it's that you all end up in heaven together one day, which I think is something we all want. Does the environment that you're creating right now in your home make that possible at all? And if not, what do we need to adjust to make sure that that is possible? I think sometimes it just takes so much intentionality because I know that's what we all want. We just don't always put in the work, the heart work that it will take to get there. So right now I'm actually going to give you some homework, which I know does not sound fun, but it's completely necessary if we want to truly bring healing, restoration, and wholeness to our homes, we have to put in the hard work. So if you have a playbook or you have your phone, you have a note on your phone you can open, you can write on your table, if you've got a table right there, um, I want you to go through this exercise and this practice Either right now, get, get it started, or take a picture of it and make it a commitment to yourself right now that you will take some time during this week to practice this exercise. So what I want you to do is I want you to write down the name of every person who lives in your home. Every person. And after you write down their name, I want you to spend just a moment reflecting on your relationship with that person. Think about how it's going. Is it healthy? Is it strong? Is it good? Are there some, is there some tension? Is there something there that's been hanging there that neither of you are willing to address? And once you figure out how things are, I want you to write two simple, short sentences. I confess whatever you need to confess, and then I forgive. Is there something you need to confess to this person, a way that you know that you've hurt them, you've wronged them in any way, and you just haven't addressed it yet? And is there something a grudge maybe that you've been holding over this person's head that you really need to say out loud or write out to make sure that you're practicing 
what scripture tells us is the most important thing for us to be doing as Christ followers. And once you figure out what those statements are, it might take you a while, it might take you a couple of days, that's okay. We'd love to challenge you to text them to us, to our church. And here's why we want you to do that. We think that we have um, a responsibility to lift you up in prayer. And we do that every single week, but we would love to lift you up in prayer specifically over the situation or the hurt or the forgiveness that needs to be offered. So if you'll text us those sentences, our pastors will be praying over you this week. It's anonymous. That's not my cell phone number, I promise. We would love nothing more than to pray over you. And when you're ready, you might need to say those sentences, those words that you are able to write out. You might need to say them out loud to whoever it is that you wrote them about. Think about the freedom that it could bring you, the healing it could bring to that relationship, the healing that it could bring into your home. Let's treat our homes like the most important ministry that they are. Don't overthink this. I've got a picture. I went ahead and practiced this out. Don't take a picture of mine um, because that's cheating. Don't steal my answers. But I wrote down my children. They're seven and four, but my daughter cut her hair on the bus last year and I can't let it go. And every time she needs me to trust her, I just don't because I think she's gonna cut her hair again. So whatever it is that's keeping you from fully living life to the fullest with the people in your home, that's what we're getting at here. The heart of what we're saying is just clear the air, heal your relationships, and God will continue to bless you and bring your families closer together. Spend just a couple minutes thinking through that exercise, and then tomorrow is gonna lead us through communion.